This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 589. And the quote of the day is, success does not consist in never making mistakes, but in never making the same one a second time. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 589, and we're taking it back. We're rewinding it all the way back to 2014, and this episode with Rick Murata, one of my favorite episodes, one of my favorite drummers, and his his resume is amazing. He's played with Aretha Franklin, Carly Simon, Steely Dan, James Taylor, Paul Simon, John Lennon, Hall & Oates, Stevie Nicks. Do I need to go on? Because I could. The list is very long. He also wrote the theme music for Everyone Loves Raymond. And he is someone who started very late, which I think is is crazy. He started playing drums when he was 19 years old. And for all of you who've been listening to this podcast, there's so many people who've started when they were three and four and five. So starting 19 is pretty young. And what he's managed to accomplish in his career starting at that at that age is amazing. And his approach to playing and simplicity and all of those things I think is super important. And the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this back up, one, partly I've been listening to a lot of his playing lately. I've been listening to a lot of Steely Dan too. and But two, this was such an older episode and it's timeless, so don't worry about that. But it's such, a, such an older episode that I feel like it gets buried uh, in the 500 and some episodes. And this is, again, this is all the way back to 2014. So this is like right after I had started the podcast. It was episode 42. So I wanted to re-air it. I, I thought that it was extremely important for people to listen to, some new listeners who haven't who haven't heard this. And maybe if you have heard this episode, a good second listen. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with the one and only Mr. Rick Murata. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you being here. It's uh, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. And we also have John DeChristopher on with us as well, who is his uh, now his new artist representative, which uh, which seems to be going well for the, for the two of you, right? Well, so far, <laughs> so far, yeah. I'm ready to quit. I got. I, I'm seeking new representation. <laughs> Well, it's been it's been a long time. How it's been what two weeks, right? Not even a week. Just oh, about- not not even a week. We've been yeah. talking about it for about ten years, but um, the negotiations the negotiations took about eight years, and <laughs> we just signed the deal this week. Right, and it's it's already it's gonna it's going down already. <laughs> it's it's going downhill fast. <laughs> No, but but in all seriousness, it, it is really great to have you here, um, especially with your with your expertise and and your storied career of the things that you've done. And I always like to get the backstory of how you got into playing. And so, give us a little bit of of history of of, of where you're from and and how you got into playing. Well, I'm from New York, and um, it kind of was. It's been an interesting story about how I started because unlike a lot of other guys, I started very late. Um, I had no direction as a kid and, and uh, my parents were dancers. And <clears throat> so we were dancers, my sister and I, 
especially. And when you say you got started late, what what age were you? Nineteen. Oh, okay. I mean, most guys I knew that were musicians were musicians from when they were like ten or eight. You know, right. They're really young. Uh, looked like they were born with guitars in their hands. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I started pretty late because I don't know. I just, it was never something that I, I loved music a lot and, and and was exposed to it a lot. Um, but I would end up going to these dances and I, I, I kind of went to this this um, this guy. Where I grew up in New York, uh, uh, I used to go to these dance contests and things. And there was this guy, uh, Dave Spinoza, who would go as well. And mm-hmm. he's this multi-talented guy. And he had a band. And, and one of the guys in his band I went to high school with, and we were all friends, even as kids. <clears throat> Dave said to me one time, man, you have great rhythm. If you played drums, I'd, 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 I'd hire you in my band. Because he had a band. He had a band from like when he was 13. Mm-hmm. And it was really good then. So, um, so his one of the drummers where I grew up, this guy named Billy Reed. He was playing in local bands around there, and he had this old Blue Sparkle Gretsch kit, I think it was. And Billy got drafted. He was going in the army. He was about eighteen years old. Maybe he was a little older. I think he's a little older than that. And I said, you know, Billy, when you go away why don't I hold on to your drums? I'll keep them here for you and keep an eye on them. I said, oh, oh, okay, cool. And then he didn't even think twice about it. And so I just brought him over to my house, set him up, and started playing. And that's how I ended up starting to play the, um, the drums. Hmm. So it was just a, just a coincidental thing that you were, were, or were you planning on, you're like, hey, man, why don't you leave these drums here and I'll, and I'll, start, and I'll start learning how to play? Well, that's what I was planning. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, hey, man, I was thinking to myself, you know, if Billy leaves his drums here, I didn't know that you could actually go get a set of drums. It wasn't in my thinking. It was, oh, this is just like a raven flew into my window. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea that people actually could go out and get a set of drums. Right. So, and I couldn't afford a set of drums back then. That was for sure. I mean, they must have cost like $25 for the whole kit. So... <laughs> <clears throat> so I um he went away and I and I and I I had the drums. I I, I kept them and he was gone for about 2 years. And in that time I um about 2 months after I started playing uh, like I'd say 2 weeks or maybe a little 2 2 to 3 weeks. I went to a gig at the Canada Lounge where my friends were playing. Andy Newmark was in the band because we grew up. We also grew up together. Andy Newmark was playing in the band with, uh, I think it was Spinoza and those guys. And uh, <clears throat> I sat in and played. I think it was Mustang Sally, and and that was the first time I ever played drums in front of people, and it was probably the only thing I knew how to play at the time. <laughs> and I sat down, and I remember trying to adjust Andy's snare drum. And as they counted it off, I was pulling the snare drum out of the. Um, out of the out of the stand, and it flew. It flew up in the air. This is the God's honest truth. <clears throat> I was so bloody nervous. It flew up in the air. It flipped over, landed in the rack in the stand perfectly with the snares facing up. By the time they got to four, so they start playing, and I'm looking at the snares, looking at me, and I thought, 
I just ruined my uh, my debut as a <laughs> as a musician. So they all turn around and they're all laughing and and of course I couldn't hit. I had to readjust everything, turn the snare, and they counted it off again. And I played Mustang Sally. And about two months later, I was playing in that band. Nice, nice. That's how I started my my career as a drummer. I'm sure the guys are thinking it. They're like, "This guy's never gonna make it." <laughs> it yeah, it was. He's he's not even gonna be able. To, he can't even be a drum tech. <laughs> I had already been away. You know, I had already gone away for a year. I was. I had gone to college in Alabama for a year before this too. I had come back that summer after a year of college, thinking I still don't know what I want to do, and it was just. You know, it's it, it it's interesting to me now to explain it because. There are, I think, a lot of kids now that that don't know what they want to do. Even I think it's really like I don't know how to explain this. I think that it's it was really good for me to have received this gift and passion late. Even though nineteen, I'm still a kid. It was good for me to receive it late because. I knew guys that started that were really good. You know, I grew up with this one kid that was that was who it's who his idol was Gene Krupa. He went to my high school and he he looked down at everybody else that played the drums because he had all these chops and he played very lightly. He played kind of like a combination of Joe Morello and Gene Krupa style playing, mm-hmm. and he kind of dressed like them and he played very underhand, very light, held the sticks in the middle. You you know what I'm talking about, right? Right, right, right. right. And, 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 and very, very accurate, like paradiddles and press rolls and, 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 and um, double stroke rolls and all that kind of stuff. He was great at it. And he had this attitude and the swagger and this look. And he was pissed off that he couldn't get a job. <laughs> and guys like me and Andy Newmark were playing in bands. And he started, and he started playing when he was four. He was wow. like Gene Krupa. Um, I think he p- picked him out as one of these prodigies and stuff like that. And he was burnt out, burnt out by the time he was 20 years old. Hmm. I mean, I don't even think the guy could do a lounge gig. He just was like, it was like he was deflated. And you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. It's like your career is already over and you haven't really even done anything except hear people tell you that you really can play well because you have um, this facility to play rudiments. Right. Well, so I think it was for me, I was too stupid to know that I didn't know how to play a press role. Uh, it was just like, it was very Neanderthal for me. The way playing the drums was just one of those things where I guess it was just something where I felt like I fit in. Felt like, you know, people with when guys in the band turn around and look at me because I was holding down a, a groove that they hadn't really felt that strong before. Mm-hmm. It made me feel really good. Sure, sure. Now let's talk about that groove a little bit. You're like when you started playing, what kind of stuff were you were you practicing? And and you know, I think that one of the intangibles that a lot of drummers try to get is that sense of groove and how to really develop. That that groove, like the groove that you have, and Steve Gadd and Steve Jordan, and you know all these great groove players. How did you develop that, and and what did you, what kind of stuff did you practice when you were starting out? First, <laughs> the thing was, I think because of the natural rhythm and 
my my parents had very very good rhythm. My parents were really good dancers, and it just was in it was so. <coughs> excuse me, it was genetic. My mm-hmm. brother Jerry, my brother Tommy, my sister, everybody in my family had my siblings all have that kind of talent. So it started there. Now, for some strange reason, it was where I would end up placing a backbeat. I mm-hmm. think that started this whole thing because I would just play it where it, it was a little bit behind where people thought it was going to be. You know, it's like, uh, here it comes. Wait a second. It, it's, it's still coming. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, 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 I learned a lot early on from Andy Newmark. Andy and I are very different players. He's a very precision-oriented very, very sort of rudiments he would practice. He showed me, and he actually was the one who taught me rudiments. I mean, he was, he would, we would sit, I would go over to his house or he'd come to my, my house. He hung out at my, my house with my parents a lot, <clears throat> even when I was out of town, you know, where it was like family. And we would sit down and he would actually show me how to hold a pair mm-hmm. of sticks and, and, um, how to play, uh, 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 a role and how to play a, a double stroke role and how to play single stroke role and how to play paradiddles. And basically it sort of stopped right around there. And he was going off into Radham McHugh's and Swiss paradiddles and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking that for what I need to do, this is probably enough. And, right. and um, we would constantly listen to guys when we would talk about guys whose styles we loved. So Andy was way into Buddy Rich. Mm-hmm. He could play all that stuff. And I, I, we listened, and it was phenomenal how much we loved Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, those guys. But we would play, he would be playing in these R&B bands. So we're listening to guys like, there was a band that was very influential to all of us back then in, 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 uh, in New York. The band was called The Orchids. Uh, it was put together by this guitar player who was a, a, who was just he was a groundbreaking, brilliant tree surgeon from Bridgeport, Connecticut, or up in Connecticut somewhere, named Link Chamberlain. <clears throat> he had this band with this guy named Bobby Lindsay, who was a singer, and the drummer's name was Ray Panucci, and they were <clears throat> excuse me, they were they were an R&B band that did all cover music and the, this joint Canada lounge or the Deercrest Inn, the two places we'd go every single weekend, even before we were old enough to get in Spinoza and I would hang outside the door and listen to these guys. They were unbelievable. Hmm. And they played, <clears throat> they played all that old Joe Tex, um, uh, Sam and Dave kind of stuff. Right. They played old Willie, um, uh, Night Train and all that kind of, you know, that, 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 that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And Ray Panucci, the drummer, I think he also got drafted. And then one day Andy and I go in there and they had a new drummer and it was this black guy who played with a snare drum, bass drum, a hi-hat and a cymbal. His name was Billy McLean, I think was his name. Billy McLean or Billy McLean. He was, he was like a revelation. He had this groove and he would sway when he played and he was, it was, that was school for us. I mean, if you talk to Newmark, 
you, um, I don't know if you ever get the chance to interview him. He's in, he's in England, but if you talk to him, he, he, and you mentioned Billy McLean, he'll, he'll remember and say, yeah, we, we learned a lot of groove from that guy. And we learned a lot of groove from Idris Muhammad. And we learned a lot of groove from Bernard Purdy. And those are the guys that were in big, big, big influences on me. And you had to play that kind of backbeat and groove. If you're listening to Bernard Purdy, which every one of us has, has gotten something from Bernard. Sure. Um, you know that regardless of what he's, he claims to have invented, he has one of the most amazing feels of any drummer. And he was, he was, he was groundbreaking. He was, uh, you know, he came and he brought this kind of almost island kind of groove and he hybridized it into this incredible rock steady funk kind of groove. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, those were, that's, was the influence for me. Um, the other, the other guys we used to listen to, 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 to really learn groove and backbeat was the rascals. Dino Dinelli and also um, Carmine. Mm -hmm. Alex, he, had, he was in this band first that was called the Pigeons, and then it was Vanilla Fudge. Sure. And the thing about Carmine was <clears throat> what I what I really liked about Carmine was that some of the grooves that they did, like they did um, a cover of uh, "You Keep Me Hanging On." Mm -hmm. So slow. It was the backbeat was like it was so slow. And I thought, I really like the slower the piece of music, the harder it is, I think, for a lot of drummers to play. I totally agree. Especially if it's a backbeat kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I got into that and it was very natural for me. And um I really felt uh like that was where I want to live. I want to live way back here. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the chop stuff I and I let Andy, Andy had a lot of chops and we would laugh about it and, and, and talk about it, but it was, he'd, he'd sort of make fun of me or, or giggle when I would try to do some of these ridiculous, crazy fills that start nowhere and end nowhere, but in the <laughs> middle, there's a million notes. Right. And I still see guys do them now. Um, and, uh, that was kind of, the entry entry point for me mm -hmm. and the early influences. So now you start, you start playing in these bands and you know, you're 19 and 20, 21. At what point did you realize this is what I really want to do for the rest of my life? This is what I want to do for a career. Um, it was really right at the very beginning. Right. I mean, I, I, I didn't go back to Alabama and I went to a community college near where I lived. Uh, cause during that's, that's the summer I picked up drumsticks and right away I started playing and I'm going to school, but I'm developing this thing for playing drums. And, uh, <clears throat> I remember I was talking about this just the other night. I remember doing a gig with that R and B band where we got the door. And I think it was a band with, um, I can't remember what we were called. It was Giant, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, we went in, 
And my old high school buddy, Jack Grazy, was the bone player, the, not bone player, the baritone sax player. It was an R&B band, <clears throat> and he was the kind of the leader of the band. And <clears throat> we did this gig at some club in, in, in New York, Westchester or upstate somewhere, and bring in our gear, and we played six sets, 40 on, 20 off. <laughs> and when we left, we got the door. Now, where people are dancing and everything else, club owner comes and gives us our money. And we, when we split the money up between the 10 or the 12 of us that were in the band, it literally came out to pennies, something like 18 cents. <laughs> but what about those people that were out there? Right. And, and he's like, well, they all got in for nothing. You know, they were just like said they were friends and stuff like that. And I remember we left and no one really complained. And I remember having this change in my hand and saying, I could do this for the rest of my life. Doesn't matter what they pay me. Nice. I was lucky because that feeling left me very quickly. Like now it's more like you don't have enough money for me to play fucking drums <laughs> right. on your show. Right. So, so why the difference in, in opinion now? No, well, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> no, I know. But when it, back then it was just fun and it was really a new experience. You're playing, you're looking out and rather than being out there dancing and stuff, um, trying to hit on, chicks on the dance floor i was up playing drums while everybody else was doing that watching and just groove i was getting i was having more of a, more fun grooving playing in the band than i was out listening to the band <coughs> and sure. getting paid for it even if it was even if it was pennies I, I was like this is great it doesn't even cost me anything i mean then what happened later on was like everything nick just like everything in life, when it turns into a job and when the more that's riding on the job, there's more pressure. You know, now, very, very soon after I started playing, I started playing on people's records. Dave Spinoza brought me right in. He just, right away, he heard me play. I played with him in his band and right away, out of the 10 guys in his band, when he would do sessions in New York City, I was the only guy he brought with him. I was the guy that he'd say, I got a drummer here that can play this R&B stuff or this funk stuff really good. And I was a white guy and people just didn't believe it. <laughs> um, uh, and it was always like, it was kind of like he would tell me sometimes it was a kind of a, a matter of pride for him. And he, he, I remember once he, um, you know, the, the, the arranger on a lot of those old R&B records was a guy named Horasat who was brilliant. Uh, there's a record that no one has ever, no one's ever heard. You can actually listen to it. Um, you can get it on YouTube. It's called Bad Women, A Dime a Dozen. It's an old Bernard Purdy song. Uh, I mean, old uh, song that Horace Ott arranged and Bernard Purdy played drums on that is just one of the most ferocious grooves from the downbeat to the very end of the song with Bernard playing those early famous fills of his and those little... That kind of stuff. Right. And that's really where I got that stuff was listening to that record over and over again. And Horace 
He did. I think he did a lot of arrangements for for Aretha. A lot of arrangements with King Curtis. All those guys. He was in. He was the guy. And he hired me on an R&B session once on a bet with Dave Spinoza. He said, "I'm going to hire this guy that you keep talking about, just because I'm going to prove to you that a white guy can't play this kind of music." <laughs> and. David tells me this before we go in. So I'm not feeling enough pressure being a kid who's just doing like a session with a hero. He's telling me that that hero says, this guy can't do it. When it was done, I remember Dave talking to Horace Hot, coming over and, and, and shaking my hand, saying, man, you sound great. Thanks for doing the session. And him saying to, I remember he said, Dave Spinoza, if I didn't hear it with my own ears and see it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. And nice. that's the day that I felt like I really, that gave you me, arrived. I mean, it gave me such an ego shot that we wouldn't even, I wouldn't even be talking <clears throat> to John DeChristopher right now if he had come up to me back then. Right. <laughs> Johnny, did you go away? No, I'm still here. I, I just, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to speak out of turn, but you're right. We, we wouldn't be in business together. <laughs> Absolutely not. <clears throat> so I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of guys out there now that have, that are playing gigs in, in bars and, you know, maybe not making a ton of money, but they, they're really passionate about this and really want to bridge that gap and say, man, I want to play with, I want to play with higher, higher, bigger name people. And I want to play on, you know, records and, and tour with people. How did, how did you bridge the gap, or how do you suggest that other people can do it for themselves? You know, it was really different back then. Exactly what I told you was happening was what happened. I did, not all of us, generally the way it worked was you start playing an instrument, you're playing at high school gigs. Well, I didn't even do that. You know, I was out of high school already. Right. But you start playing gigs in high school, and... You start playing around town, and then from, from a high school gig, gig in the gymnasium, somebody may have a party, and your band plays the party. And at that party, there might be somebody from another town that's there that sees you, and you go play in that band. And it's like you spread like a virus. Mm -hmm. Okay? Really, it's a kind of a good way to look at it. You spread like a virus. You, you go out, you, you infect someone. They take you along with them. You, you, the next thing you know, you've got a network. Mm -hmm. Basically. Excuse me. It's basically a networking thing that you don't know. We don't didn't know it was networking, but that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, that's the way it happened, and for a lot of other guys, I knew that's the way it happened. There are some guys that are really good at networking. They're on the phone all the time. I never. It's not been my my um, forte, and it's still not. But these guys would. Uh, we would go out. We would play gigs. You're heard. If we did a gig and, and uh, someone was in the audience or someone was at the gig that had another, the next step up, they would pull us out. That's how it happened with me. I was playing in these R&B bands and we, we were doing gigs where we were like on the bill with three and four other bands. So then these guys, the vagrants were there, but it was <coughs> Leslie West wasn't in the band anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And it turns out they were putting this kind of New York super group together. And the, the, the bass player and the guitar player from that band saw me playing with this R&B band. And they kind of went nuts. And they said, would I come down and work, just play with them at um, their rehearsal? I said, sure. So I went down to Spring Street. And it turns out I never auditioned for any gigs. Um, voluntarily. I just didn't feel like that was, my audition was me playing in this band, you know, you want me to play with you, fine. Otherwise, I, I, I didn't have that rejection was a very difficult thing for me. So I went down there and I played with them and it turns out there was another drummer down there too, a guy named Wells Kelly, who was brilliant, who was great. And they just said, oh, we Wells plays completely, totally different from you. And we heard him and we heard you and Long story short, I ended up getting going in this band, just the three of us. They put this thing together. They flew us off to Los Angeles, and it was my first foray into being in a in a small, not a 10-piece band. It was a small kind of a country rock band, and it really sent me in another direction, and I, it was great. It was me, a guy named Tom Cosgrove. Stu Woods, the band was called Brethren, and Dr. John was the keyboard player that played on our record that we did in Los Angeles, and he wrote the liner notes. Nice. And it's, and it's sort of that. So I, I started doing that Brethren band, and, and, um, and then it went from one to another to another. So that was the next level up. You know mm -hmm. what I mean, Nick? Yeah, yeah. And That's then from that, then we go, and, and Al Cooper saw us, and he got me and the bass player to go play with him on some tours, when we weren't on the road uh, doing <clears throat> Brethren, um, we had uh, label support and stuff back then. When we were doing, when we would do Brethren, uh, when we got, when we were off the road, Al Cooper would have us play with him. And then Paul Simon heard us maybe doing something with Al Cooper and calls me to do work on his record. And then that's how it went. Guys would hear us. Then it was guys heard about us. That's the way it was back then. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> I don't see the same thing happening. I mean, in LA, in New York, back when I came up, there were like, there were so many clubs that, that were all over New York City with great bands playing where you could, you could go anywhere. Even down on Broadway, there was the Headliner and the Wagon Wheel and the Metropole Cafe. <clears throat> and the Metropole had, would, would you, you, at the Metropole, which was right on Broadway, you'd see Joey D and the Starlighters would be playing and Jake LaMotta was the bouncer at the door. I mean, that's the kind of, it was, right. almost like, it was like a cultural, a mecca of just the weirdest cultures getting together. And, the, and so we, everybody would hear each other and we'd all start to become a community and everybody started to know each other and everybody started climbing to the top. And, you know, if you're in New York, city at that time there's a lot of recording going on in new york muscle shoals detroit philadelphia and los angeles mm -hmm. then it was london and that's where we would go i mean you were that became our new thing so now okay uh i'm flying out to la to do a record from new york so that's the way this business started for me i mean i don't know i think there were other guys a lot of other guys who came up that way. Johnny, you know a lot about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Hang on one second. I got to give the guy a piece. Okay. I'm going to shut my window too, so hold on for one second. Yeah.
Hi, buddy. How are you? Six thirty-four. Yes, I see. P seven. Yes. Thank you. It's always quiet until you hit the record button. Then everybody wants to make as much noise as possible. <laughs> so, am I making any sense with this? Or Abs- absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> so, now, what do you think the direction is going now, though? <clears throat> Honestly, I, I got to tell you, I'm. I don't know when kids come up to me and they say, what do you think I should do now? Or, or any musician of any kind, singers, guitar players, anything, anybody playing anything. I honestly don't know. I think the way it is right now, technology has changed everything. Right. Um, I tell people, if you can play out, play out. But most people I know have their own recording setups mm-hmm. in their bedrooms. <laughs> and I tell them to just start recording because it looks like right now drummers are a different breed. I mean, you could be a guitar player or a singer songwriter and you could sit in front of, you could sit in front of your Mac. Mm-hmm with GarageBand, and you can record yourself. And I've had people send me stuff to listen to that they've done like that. That sounds pretty good. Right. I mean, (laughs) it sounds like what it is, but it sounds pretty good. And they're learning. um, I'm kind of mentoring this one person in L.A. who's graduating from doing that on GarageBand to getting um, Focusrite Sapphire and using logic or pro tools. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm telling people to do now and start writing and recording drummers. Basically, unless you're a guy that, uh, like the guy in Metallica or blink 182, um, and your, it's your gig, Terry Bozio, you rely on other people, right? Drummer is the ultimate side man. Am, am I right or am I wrong about that? No, I, would, right. I, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with you on that. You very rarely go to a club and see a guy sitting and singing um, uh, R&B, rock and roll, or lounge songs, sitting behind a, a, a drum kit playing a bossa nova with nobody else there. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. it's not going to happen unless he's got like a machine playing the rest of the stuff. So you're even, you're a side, you're your own side man if you're a drummer. So that's the linchpin with being a drummer. You have to be able to hitch yourself to a wagon and these wagons just fall apart. Mm -hmm. I see wheels, wheels (laughs) coming off left and right. Um, The other, the other thing is like, I, I also will be watching, uh, acts like uh, on TV mostly when they have the award shows and or or uh, whatever shows that they have that are, that have <clears throat> feet like Saturday Night Live or anything like that where they feature a band and you'll see these guys playing like rap bands, um, guess some sort of R and B combo kind of band. And what I'm noticing is I can't tell the difference from one drummer 
to another drummer, to another drummer, fill-wise, groove-wise. It's not like I'm listening to, when he first came up, Steve Gadd or Keith Carlock or Jim Keltner. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's no, I don't see a personality. That's the one thing that I think that I had, certain guys had was just had our own sound and personality and played differently, like weird fills um, or weird approach to what you would play, maybe be a little bit sort of left-handed. I don't see that. Now, granted, I don't see everybody who's playing. Sure. But why do you think that is? Why do you think that people are so are so stale now? Do you think it's because they're not taking the time to go back in history and listen to the drummers that came before them? You know what, Nick? That's that's you're saying it the way you're you said it exactly the right way. My, the one word I was going to use was exposure. Mm-hmm. This is what they're exposed to. Like a lot of these guys, <clears throat> I think, listen to the guy playing in Rihanna's band or the guy playing in um, uh, a, guy, a guy who's playing drums. If, if uh, shit, Jay-Z, there's probably the same band. Um, Tony Royster plays with Jay-Z. I think. I don't know who the guys are. Right. Yeah, they are. What's that? I said, that's correct. It is Tony Royster. Yeah. Um, whoever these guys are, they're the kids coming up are only listening to them. And they're not listening to they're not listening to the broader spectrum musically. Mm-hmm. I, I realize that's their interest. <clears throat> when I was a kid growing up, I was listening to, to Krupa, to Buddy Rich, to Louis Belson, to Bernard Purdy, to um, to, um, to Dino Donelli, to. Uh, uh, Christ, one after another after another. Sure. Genre, genre, genre. From everywhere. You know? And, 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 and I was lucky. I was influenced. Grady Tate. Because Dave Spinoza would come in and say, listen to this. We're going to do this West Montgomery song. Mm-hmm. And Grady's playing on this West Montgomery thing. And then someone else would come in and say, we're going to do this um, Joe Tex song. Mm-hmm. And someone else would come in and say, we're going to do this, uh, this uh, Aretha song that they did in Muscle Shoals. And then someone said, we're going to do this Aretha song that they did here in New York, and it's Bernard. So you got Bernard playing in uh, the um, uh, Roger Hawkins doing the Muscle Shoals thing, and you got Bernard playing the New York thing, same artist, different, even different approaches to that, both valid and great. And so right. we're sucking in all of, this, all of this knowledge and all of this um, different uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that you you hit the nail on the head with saying I was listening to Krupa, I was listening to Rich, I was listening to Bernard Purdy, I was listening to, you know, whoever it is, but now if you talk to people, they say I listen to Jay-Z, I listen to, you know, John Mayer, I listen to whatever yeah. it is. And so they're they're naming the artists, not the drummers. Right. You know, and I I feel like, you know, years ago people were listening to the drummer that was in a particular band. Now they're listening to a particular band and whoever the drummer is, that's who they're exposed to. Yes. You know? Yes. You know, um, there are some guys like, um, Oh, Johnny, help me here. Um, 
I, I love the guy too. He he does the uh, he does American Idol. Um, Teddy oh, Campbell. Uh, Teddy, Teddy Campbell. Teddy Campbell. Mm-hmm. Teddy Campbell. Teddy Campbell. So bad with names. Um, <laughs> T- Teddy. Yep. Great drummer. Can go in and play that that Jay Z Rihanna that um, uh, um, that kind of stuff style perfectly. I doing when we were doing Groove, Groove All Stars sat down next to Teddy and played with Teddy, and yeah. the guy has incredible amount of chops, great groove, can put the backbeat anywhere he wants to naturally, and played so fluid, had such a fluid feel when sitting down with me. I was really impressed and know that this guy is a great player who's, who's, who's been respectful of other genres and he's been influenced by other people. Now, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there are other drummers like that. Sometimes when I have to sit down next to another drummer, sometimes when we're playing, I could tell as, <coughs> as soon as we play the groove, they've learned a groove from a machine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And then when the, the, a fill comes... Fills can be rapid fire with no dynamic and lots of chops, but doesn't make a lot of sense musically. It's just like you press the fill button on a machine. And that's where I, that, the, there's the difference. I was never influenced by anything that was machine-like. Right. Now, everything was human, so everything was about personality. I mean, you listen to early, you listen to, you could go to school listening to a Ry Cooter record that that um, uh, um, from the like uh, Chicken Skin music or uh, that era um, with um, what's his name? Uh, um, Was it Keltner back then? Keltner, yeah, got him. Yeah. With Keltner playing, you yeah. could go listen to that. And it's just, it's just a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I miss. I remember, I don't want to forget to say one thing because <coughs> my representative is listening. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was just starting to play and Spinoza went away and did a gig. I wasn't in the band. I think that the, the drummer before, one of the early drummers had been playing with the band and they had to go up to... Stick Rochester, they were doing a gig up there, and Marvin Gaye was going to play with them that night. And they brought charts for Marvin Gaye, and of course, Spinoza could read anything. And uh, a couple of guys could read anything. They bring out, Marvin Gaye comes out, the band, this band that I played with later on, I wasn't playing with them, they're there, sort of pretending to play the horn parts and stuff. But they brought this kid, this local kid, in, whose father had to bring him to the gig to play drums, who read the show from downbeat one to the very end flawlessly. That kid's name was Steve Gatt. Nice. (laughs) So Dave tells me about this guy from years ago. Mm -hmm. He says to me, then... We're in New York, and he calls me up. Mike Maneri calls me, and Dave Spinoza calls me, and they say, 
there's this kid coming to town. He's new in town. We really want you to meet him. You guys are going to get re- get along really well. And Dave calls me and says, Rick, remember that kid I told you about whose father brought him to the gig years ago? This is that same guy. His name is Steve Gatt. So Steve and I, he just comes to New York. He's He knows Mike Maneri, I guess, through Tony Levin because – I think Tony and, and Steve played in the Army Band together or something. We went to Eastman School of Music together. That's what it was. Right. Rochester. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so, so I meet Steve. He comes to a, a session I'm doing. It's the first time I met him. And we hung out and we became, we were fast friends since then. But Steve, I remember, I, I was, what, where, I want to hear the guy play. I want to hear the guy play. <clears throat> On TV was this show, a concert, Gap Manjone playing with Chuck. I think it was Chuck Manjone and Gap Manjone playing. And I think Tony Levin was playing bass and Steve Gadd was playing drums. This is before he came to New York. Mm-hmm. This is a Rochester kind of a group. And it was big, and it was a video, and I'm, see the whole thing. And I remember it had some sort of psychedelic effects to it. And I remember <clears throat> understanding enough about drums that I saw Steve play, and he played nothing like anybody I had heard before him. He had this different way of playing a groove. It wasn't the way I played. We mm-hmm. didn't play alike. He played completely different. And I remember looking at it going, that's, he had this rolling sort of rolling kind of free flowing movement to his playing. Mm -hmm. So when he came to New York, uh, I noticed that it, it was evolving to where he is now. But where he started was from a completely unique and creative position. Totally unique and creative. And that's why the way he is, the way he he became who he was. He came out and he started playing different from anybody else by playing, you know, groove time Mm -hmm. with his feel, with his his sense of fill, of transition from one section to another, it was, it was magic. And, um, I was really influenced a lot by those kind of players growing, coming up. Mm -hmm. I think that there was a quote that he said, what's what's, that? I I remember a quote that, uh, that Steve said something about, you know, he, he was playing all this, he could play all this crazy stuff. And, uh, but he wasn't getting hired for gigs and then he learned how to groove and, you know, and then everybody started hiring him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was getting hired for gigs. There was no lack of work for Steve Gadd, no matter how crazy he played. But (laughs) when he was playing with, 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 with the man Jones and stuff like that, they, they got to play. They, it was pretty out there, but it wasn't free. It wasn't free music. It was just sort of like a, and it's someone that was an amalgam of jazz meets sort of not so much funk but it was just that sort of progression of jazz it's almost like fusion i hate to use that word but it was it was that kind of thing whereas when he really was exposed to just funky knuckle backbeat 
groove funk groove stuff, he ate it up. Mm-hmm. But he could do it. There are a lot of guys that couldn't do it. They're right. great at what they do. I mean, they could sit down and play whisper jet kind of stuff, but they can't do the other thing. He he's just one of those guys that can do it all. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, we were doing a gig. One of the times we did Groove All Stars. One of the things that we go way back. Steve and I, right after we met, we ended up. It ended up being like me or Steve on these sessions, and with our own friends. You know, like <clears throat> then then it was a guy John Trope called and said, "I want both you guys on my record, and I want you both playing at the same time." So we started playing together a lot. We would do gigs with Ralph McDonald. Together with John Trope, together with a bunch of Carly Simon, we played two drums. We went, <laughs> sadly, we went to, we toured a bit with um, Yoko Ono with two drums <laughs> in the Plastic Ono band. But <laughs> we we really could do that stuff together really well. And sometimes, like when we were doing, <laughs> we were doing, we would argue uh, when we were playing with. Um, uh, Trope, a lot of live gigs we did together because we love playing together. But sometimes we would argue, like, you're playing too much or you're not playing enough. <laughs> I got to carry the whole thing. What are you doing? What do you want, a break? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I remember when we did a few years ago, now it's a long time ago, but, but we were doing these Groove All-Star gigs at, at the NAMM show, which were phenomenal. They were phenomenal gigs. I mean, that's where I got to meet and hear the uh, the genius of uh, Keith Carlock for the first time was there. They were telling me about this guy, and I saw a lot of guys come and go. But you heard Keith play right away, and it was different, completely different approach. Man, I just saw Keith play a couple of weeks ago here in New York, and it was just he's playing. Yeah, with- he's, he's amazing. He's he is. A, he's he's above human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve and I are playing Groove All Stars, and we he goes. Now, I had heard from the guys who were doing Lamage that he's that would do whole gigs just with brushes, <clears throat> and I get it. <clears throat> I so get Steve and that whole thought process. I love it. So we're going to play together, and he says, "Let's try to play quiet." And I knew this was going to come. <laughs> we're walking out to play, and he takes out. I see he pulls his brushes out. And we're going to do something like, uh, uh, I think it was the letter, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was the letter, I think, yeah. where you got to play. He pulls out brushes. I pull out my brushes. So he turns to me and says, I'm going to play like this. I'm going to play like this. He plays lighter. He goes, then I'm going to play like this. And I don't even hit the drums. I go, I'm going to play like this. And I didn't even touch anything. <laughs> and we were hysterical before we even counted the song off. And we would look at each other and we was trying to see who could play quieter than the other guy without driving the rest of the band completely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. That's kind of the, the that kind of stuff. That's just creative artistic insanity to me and i love it <laughs> it may not be the best thing you ever do but it's just different and it's an it, okay let's approach it completely differently right and, and that's what i miss i mean that's we're talking about stuff then and now and i hate to sound like an old timer but i kind of am and it's what i really miss i love to see kids like you can walk in you could i can hear a band playing and go eight bars into it, 
this guy's great. I could turn to Johnny. He'd turn to me and we'll go, this guy, this guy's special playing drums, playing drums. Mm -hmm. Um, and you could go eight bars and go, this is not going to be a good night. Right. <laughs> that's when I'm on the gig. That's when you know it's me. I was going to say, it's, it's probably me that's playing. If, you know, I don't, don't listen to eight bars of my play. <laughs> no, I, don't believe, I don't believe any of that. It's just that <clears throat> sometimes you just know it's what you, it's just something different and something special. There's a lot of great players out there. And, you know, Nick, you said earlier, you said something that I, I want to not forget. I want to address. You said, "Where there are a lot of guys out there who want to know, who want to play with, with bigger stars and bi better gigs and bigger people." I got to tell you something. I know guys that have been around that are players that have played with great people that have played with big people, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, like whoever you would consider big now. Like, let's use anybody you want to consider now. Um, and <clears throat> now they're like home with their families. They still want to play bass players, guitar players, drummers. And they don't care to go out and play with these big acts. They want to play with great players. Right. That's missing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I've been playing with this band that we've kind of sort of established by accident um, of this drum, this guitar player lives in, we don't play a lot together. The guitar player lives in Maui, bass player lives in Los Angeles, and I'm all over the place. And so far we've done gigs on Martha's Vineyard. We've done gigs in LA at the baked potato. We've done gigs in New York at the cutting room. And I forgot a couple other places. Maybe we're going to do one down in Miami. Um, talking to some people at the University of Miami and about the Miami Art Center about some of this stuff. But we all love playing together. It costs us money to play. Right. And stress because we have to relearn all of this music and it's not so, so easy all the time. But it's, I'd rather do that than go out and be really unhappy playing gigs that are just too precious. Right. I have to say this last year, I had a really good time. Um, I don't go out as much because I, I, you know, you, you kiss a lot of frogs and all that kind of stuff. And the bloom is off the rose on a lot of gigs. I don't really, there are a few bands I really would love to play with. And I don't think I want to go on the road for more than a couple of months at a time. Mm -hmm. But uh, like Steve does, uh, but, um, or a lot of these guys that just have to live on the road. I just don't think it's one of those things that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. I went out last year because um, uh, the drummer in Stevie Nicks' band uh, was working in, in, in Japan for a couple of months. And, <clears throat> and so uh, Wadi Wachtel called me and said that Stevie wanted to know if I could do a few of these gigs, which I did. And it was really a lot of fun. The band was great. You know, you feel the pressure because you got a bunch of guys, um, you got a bunch of people out there watching you do this live show with a big artist. Mm -hmm. But it was, I got to say, it was a lot of fun to do that. And it was great. And it was musical. I felt like it was musical. The band was really good. I mean, Waddy's a little nuts with the tempo thing, you know, like he got to look at this metronome and it's, it's not 118, 118 beats a minute, 
110 beats a minute. He's like losing his mind. His glasses fog up. <laughs> but I couldn't love the guy anymore, and he's an incredible musician. I used to I put I used to play in a band when the and the bass player was the MD and he would count the songs off at normally at like one you know he'd count it off at one twenty and then come in at like ninety <laughs> you know or he would like oh, yeah. or he would like cut off like a he'd count off a six eight blues but he would just count it off in four yeah and just like and I'm, he's the MD so I can't really say anything but I'm like come on man yeah. oh no no Wadi is Wadi is a monster of an MD. He's great. Right, right. I I was just saying the you know the complete opposite of that is what, what I Oh, but, but no, but it, I I kind of like that better because <laughs> then you start out and it's a clusterfuck from the get-go. Right. At least you know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other is you just feel like, "Oh my god, if I deviate a beat and my time, I was pretty well known for having good time." Right. And and and, and Wadi knows it. Sometimes when you're on stage, you know, when you got all that adrenaline going, you're playing, you're doing 120 beats per minute. It feels like you're doing 90 beats a minute. You know what I mean? Right. It feels like this can't be fast enough because I should be playing a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> and some guys I know, some drummers like to pick up the tempo at the first fill that they play. You know, it starts right. out at one tempo and you see that ladder climb. How fast can this go? Mm-hmm. It's one thing to talk about how great Dream Symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about Dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out DreamSymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at DreamSymbols.com. If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. You would mention, you know, how some of the how some of the pizzazz has, has gone from some of these gigs. And you've you've played on some on some major records, you've played on some some major gigs. Um one of them in particular that I love is the Asia record and especially, you know, the peg groove. And I remember watching a video from you from a while ago saying that that was the, your favorite groove that you you ever played on a record. Do you still feel that way? It's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most famous, I think, groove. Um, but, I, I mean, it is one of my favorites because <clears throat> Chuck and I, I, I really felt like Chuck Rainey and I just sort of, we had worked a lot together, the bass player and I. We were on the road together with Roberta Flack. We had done a lot of records together. We had done, we, you know, you're on the road together with these guys and you really become, you really start to lock. And Chuck was, was a phenomenal bass player. I mean, he's on so many hit records mm -hmm. and he's a very, very, very smart guy. And um, 
one of the reasons I loved it was because you heard it. I've played those grooves, kind of grooves before, and then when you hear the record, you don't hear it. <clears throat> Elliot Shiner, the engineer, made sure that when I opened and closed the hi-hat a little bit, that's what I remember the most about that. I was doing all this little little inside stuff with the hi-hat mm -hmm. and um, left hand and right foot kind of stuff. Elliot didn't miss any of it, any of it. It was all there. That's what I loved. That's what made it for me. Chuck and I, we did this little thing where we changed from the verse. I saw, I remember looking at him. I remember Chuck would look at me out of the corner of his eye. Like, it was like, okay, it's like when you're in a cockpit with a pilot and a co-pilot and they kind of look at each other and both have their hands on the throttle and both move the throttle up at the same time. Right. And you're taking off. He'd look over at me like we were in the cockpit. Bang. When we, when we went from the verse to that um, chorus section, it just lifted just a little bit. Mm -hmm. He changed his bass part just a little bit. I changed the pattern just, just a little bit and opened and closed the hi-hat just a tad differently, and it was all there. That's what I love about that groove. It's not so much. That's what I think made that groove is those little things made it really musical and really feel like alive it mm -hmm. breathed you know what i mean <laughs> it's i mean it's a killer groove <laughs> I, I i i admit that i really do love it but i gotta say there are other things like i i know when i used to play with um <clears throat> linda ronstadt and we would do tumbling dice this a rolling stone song it's way 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 laid back song I remember playing that as far back as I could when we would play live mm -hmm. with Rolnick and Wadi and me and Kenny Edwards playing that stuff. And that groove felt unbelievable to me. The groove on uh, Warren Zevon on um, um, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, I thought was a great groove. It's different, but great. Right. But one of the best grooves I think I ever <coughs> played is a groove that I don't think anyone has ever heard. Uh, was on a James Taylor record called Dad Loves His Work, which the um, public didn't love James's work, I think, on that. <laughs> but it's a song called Hour That the Morning Comes. And I played this groove that sort of popped into my head that was, I, I just kept thinking, I'm going to play on the top of the kit and I'm going to play this non, um, it's, it's not going to be a standard uh, funk or rock or folk groove. It's going to be this kind of like, I'm going to compose a drum part. I guess that's the way to say it without sounding too full of myself. I'm going to compose a drum part for this song. And it really just came into my head. And when I listened to it, I played these patterns that I felt were counterpoint to what James and band was doing, then lock in with what they were doing. So I float. What I did was I kind of felt like I was floating around this, this, this groove. I was thinking, I remember I was thinking about Muhammad Ali float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Mm -hmm. I Playing this, <clears throat> and and you know anybody who knows my playing, Johnny will tell you, I'm not a, a floater. I'm a guy. I'm a you know 
I like to dig a ditch, like uh, Jeff Picaro used to say. Another great, great, great drummer, Jeff, used to say, Murata digs a, di- a ditch. When he plays, he's, you know, he's digging a ditch. Mm-hmm. I like that description. This was kind of floating. And it's one of my favorite drum parts. And, and one day I was doing this gig with Larry Carlton at, uh, um, at the Baked Potato. And it's, if you listen to it, it's just all over the place. But it's very, every section when I do it, it's like a part. Okay, I repeated the parts. It's not like it's just slamming and flying all over the place. It's just right. odd, but a lot of that paradiddle work, that inside paradiddle stuff I used to look, do a lot. Um, what's, what's the name of the, uh, of the tune? The Hour That the Morning Comes. Okay. I got it playing right now if you want to hear a little bit. Yeah. Are you guys getting that? Yeah. It's great, so. And knowing Rick's playing the way I do, if if I heard this on the radio, I I would think it was him or Jeff or or Steve. I mean, it's, right. to me, it is it's it is signature Rick to me because I know it's not how you normally play, Rick, but it has that feel that you have. That whenever I sit down, you know what, Johnny? When I sit down to play something now, and I would just if I'm playing something else, I'm just feeling loose. It always comes out like that first. Yeah. But you don't can't do that on everything. To be honest with you, when we did that, when we cut that track, when we were finished, <clears throat> uh, Danny Korchmar came in. Everyone loved it. Danny Korchmar comes in and says to James, "James, you can't put a record. You can't. That can't be on the record. That doesn't sound." We had to recut it the next day. I was beside myself. I was so pissed off because I finally get to do something. And this is the other thing about doing records I don't like doing. I did something I was really proud of and I really loved. And it was like, gave me that, that freedom to be creative. It was one of the most creative parts I'd ever come up with. And Cooch comes in and says, no, 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 you got to play backbeat. So we come in. So Cooch comes in the next day to reproduce what we did the day before. And he plays guitar on it. And he's sitting there with Peter Asher redoing it. And James is like, yeah, we can't do that. Cooch says it's not going to be good. Peter Asher was producing, producing the record, said, you're wrong. It's great. Murata's brilliant. We leave it like that. So anyway, we recut it the next day. It was so depressing for me. I left there thinking, okay, that's going to go on the record, and I'm never even going to hear that thing again that I did. Well, thankfully, Peter walks in to James and says, James, I don't care what you or Cooch says. We're going back to the original that Murata did, and that's the way we're going to release the record. Nice. Maybe, maybe that was the kiss of death. Maybe what, that's why Dad Loves His Work went down the toilet. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't but think so I either. I doubt it a lot. So I was doing this gig with, with this guy, with uh, Larry Carlton at the Baked Potato, and I'm walking into the gig one night. There's a line going around the block. We did two shows. We, would always, we didn't rehearse when I was playing with Larry. <clears throat> we would do a gig. We would do two or three nights at the baked potato and pack the place. And we would, that was our rehearsal. Then we'd go on the road. So we were going to Sweden or something. We were doing a European tour or something. So we, were, we went there first to do this, this uh, <clears throat> gig. And as I'm walking in, this young kid comes running up to me. He could hardly talk. I was with my girlfriend at the time. She was so, like, she was almost going to hold him up. She was so taken by it. She almost started crying. He says, oh, Mr. Murata, I... I am. So, I can't believe I'm meeting you. I'm such a fan. I, I want to give you this. I, 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 
I've never heard anything like this. I'm going to give it to you. He had written out note for note every rough. And if, Nick, if you listen to this, it's not, I couldn't write it out if you paid me. <laughs> he yeah. wrote out every note of Hour That the Morning Comes, said it was <clears throat> unbelievably inspiring to him. Now, I saw him really nice to the guy. I bring him into the show and, you know, I take him in. I think she sat with him <clears throat> to make sure he was okay and everything. Turns out he was the Canadian rudimentary champion. He had won the rudiments championship for Canada. And nice. I, I didn't even know. I said to him, you really, you're looking up to me, and I don't even know what a, uh, how to play a mama-daddy role. Right. And uh, kind of put him a little bit at ease. But, I mean, that kind of stuff made me feel really good. That was a really influential. That was one of the best groups I ever played. No one's going to hear that thing. Johnny heard it because I made, I probably made him listen to it. <laughs> well, you, we, I was at your house at, on the vineyard years ago and you, we were talking about stuff like this and you said, have you ever heard this song? And I said, I don't know if I've heard that. And you played it for me. And I went, that's, that's unbelievable. And I think you made, I, you made me a copy. Don't tell James. And I loaded it into my iTunes and I listen to it all the time. I really do. It's a great song. And it's not just the drumming. The whole song is great. The sliding the guitar work. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. great. It was one of those things that came together fast. It just was one of those things yeah. like, I don't know what it was, but we're going from section to section to section in that song. <clears throat> we were all, everybody was just on it. It felt really good. If, if with, I don't want to take too much of Rick's time, but... In, in his interview here, but I want to comment on a song that I love that Rick played on that for years I heard this song on the radio and because it's by Boz Skaggs, I just assumed Jeff Beccaro. Jeff played on, you know, Lido Shuffle, Lowdown and Silk Degrees. So I just assumed it was Jeff. Well, lo and behold, I buy the CD and who's the drummer on the song, but Rick Murata. And the song is called Breakdown Dead Ahead. And it's a song that Rick doesn't talk much about when we, you know, I think I have to remind you sometimes, Rick, how great this song is. And I'm going to just, since I'm playing DJ here, I'm going to play like a couple of seconds of it. But it's. Yeah, let's hear that. This is, this is like such a rocking tune. Is that Mike Landau on guitar, Rick, or is that. Definitely digging the trenches. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 That was, I, I do remember it and I do love that. I, I don't know why. I do love that groove. That was, um, but that's a, sh you know, it's a little intimidating to do a shuffle uh, on, uh, after, you know, Picaro has played the yeah. shuffle with the right. same guy. You know, you, yeah. but I guess it. Boz could not have been nicer. I think it might be Mike Landau. I'm not sure, but I think I remember. Or oh. Michael Thompson, maybe? It's Landau or, or Thompson, I think. And also on those sessions was, I believe, I believe was 
Ray uh, Parker Jr. Ray Parker Jr. Yeah. Nice. But, yeah. but Ray, Ray played a lot of single note kind of thing. Didn't Ray Parker Jr. write "I Want a New Drug" by Huey Lewis? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait a minute, no, it's, I got that backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't talk about that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sir, I didn't. I just wanted to just get this on there because I just this is a. I listen to this when I run F almost every day. It's I'm gonna enough. listen to it some more. Yeah. You know, you know, there's a lot of records. You know, I honestly, I got to tell you, one of the records I thought <clears throat> I was really being creative on, I don't talk about very much, but was this song called Popcorn um, by Hot Butter, which sold millions. It was, it was funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I played, it, it's this song, you'll hear it even today. It goes, dun, 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 dun. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know it well. Yeah, oh, yeah. So when we did that session, it was only me, a bass player named Joe Mack, and the guy who wrote it, and playing some sort of like, uh, you know, that back then it was a synthesizer that everything was, was so weird. It was really, and I was just starting playing. And I had just learned about samba. So I'm thinking every place I went, I go, okay. I'm going to do the session. It's supposed to be like a funk group because I was a funk guy back then. <laughs> I'm going to play a samba. And they let me play a samba on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, yeah, that, that's got some great. All on the snare drum. I just yeah. learned how to play a rolling, like, on, yeah. you know, like a rolling thing on the, uh, <clears throat> on the snare drum and bass drum doing a samba, you know, with that dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Right. And uh, you think, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Next thing you know, the thing sold millions. <laughs> millions. <laughs> I made $60. <laughs> I felt like Linda Lovelace. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> $60. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Boy, Who's oh the whore now? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, goodness. So, <laughs> with all of these, you know, you've played on all these historical records and, and, um, <laughs> and, and made all, tons and tons of, of money from the millions of the records that you sold. The $60, oh. $60 piled up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, John and I were talking a little bit off air that, that you kind of got ahead of the curve um, when a lot of the session work started drying up for everybody. You started moving in, in to television. Can you talk about that a little bit with, with the Everybody Loves Raymond show? Sure. sure. So, how, like, how does that whole thing come about? How did you get into that? And I was touring. Um, I was touring. I was playing on records. I was really sort of lost and, and I was really, really unhappy. I was stopping. I don't know what we could talk about, but I was, I was really, I was, I was not doing drugs anymore or drinking anymore. <clears throat> Being on the road was, was really becoming difficult and not fun. You know, you'd be out on the road and everybody else is high and you're not. And, and not, being on the road for me was not easy. It was not easy for anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> unless, you know, you're in, 
the Stones or Metallica or something like that. Um, so even even with when we had our own planes and all that other kind of stuff, it really just wasn't. I was not happy. So and I I knew I didn't. There wasn't anything else I could do. So I started thinking I want to write. I want to learn how to write because mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to. And everybody else was writing, and I'm playing on all their records. So I started writing, and uh, and um, I met this guy. I was doing. A, I was also playing drums. I'm trying to make a living, so I was playing drums on a on the Tracy Ullman show, and <laughs> that we would have a live band on the Tracy show, and I was the drummer, and. Um, uh, Richard Gibbs was the composer on the show. And so then Richard handed that job over to me as the, as the musical director on the show. And then um, I met playing golf. I met this TV producer and guys knew who I was. I wanted to make this transition, but they all wanted to meet Rick Murata, the the drummer. And it was really difficult to make that transition. It took a long time because I remember I took a meeting with a guy that was one of the heads of music at, at one of the, um, like one of the big studios in, in LA, <clears throat> I got a meeting with this guy. He's the music head at a television studio or a movie studio. Mm-hmm. And I walk in thinking this is, and I'm not good at meetings. It's all like, I walk in thinking, well, this is, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do the best I can. And I walk in and he's got behind the desk. He has a copy of a modern drummer magazine that I was in. <laughs> And he pulls it out and asks me to sign it. Huh. I got this meeting because he wanted to meet Rick Marotta, the drummer, because he was a drummer. <laughs> right. In a garage band. <clears throat> hey, whatever works, right? And I never got a job from that. It was very discouraging. Oh. So I just, I just sort of thought, well, this is never going to happen. <clears throat> and I ended up uh, playing golf with this guy who was a producer and an actor friend of mine, Sam McMurray, who was on the Tracy Ullman show said to Alan Kirschenbaum, Alan, you know, Rick Murata's doing the music to our show and, and uh, uh, he's the musical director and, and Alan knew who I was because he was an audiophile and he says, I know who Rick Murata is. And as we quit, we're walking off, Alan turns to me, he was a young guy at the time. He says, listen, I'm going to be doing a show in about six, about eight months. Um, would you like to uh, maybe do the music for the show? I said, Sure. So I gave him my number and I didn't hear from him. Six months later, I get a call. He goes, this is Alan, that show I was telling you about six months ago. And I just met the guy in the golf course. He says, that show I was told you about six months ago, um, is, we're going to do it. So would you like to come in for a meeting? I went in for a meeting. And he, we had a great meeting. And I brought a tape of music I had been writing to do this. And at the end of the meeting, he said, you know what? I really like everything about you and what you're saying. You're saying just what I want to hear. You've got the job. I said, you know, before I get the job, I put the, I put the cassette on, the, on his desk and I slid it across to him and I said, I'd rather you listen to my reel and then let me know if you want me to do the show. And he took the cassette, he put his finger on it and he slid it back to me and he said, you could only lose the job. Hmm. And so I took the cassette and learned to take yes for an answer and that's what started me. I started working on his show and went for two years and then the guys that did that show, one of his partners did Everybody Loves Raymond, and he called me when he did Everybody Loves Raymond, and then Everybody Loves Raymond is John's vacation house. Right. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, it kind of is. 
And we appreciate it, Rick. You know that. With my representation, I'm going to probably have to get rid of that house and staying at John's place on the vineyard for now. <laughs> well, that's the way it's coming to make so much money from, from you that I'll be able to buy a big house there. And I hope so. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what was the show before Everybody Loves Raymond? Down the Shore. <clears throat> I don't then even I, coach. Then I did a, an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Because my ex-wife knew, um, oh no, because Joel Silver, the, the, the producer of Tales from the Crypt, knew me from when I was, uh, he, was a, he was an assistant to Richard Perry, who was a producer. I had done Pointer Sisters and Carly Simon and uh, probably Boz or somebody like that with, with Richard. Richard was a very big producer in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he did uh, You're So Vain and that stuff. And mm-hmm. He... Uh, uh, Joel Silver, who was a huge, he did all the Die Hard movies and all that stuff. Producer, he w- was such a good guy to me, man. He 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 remembered me as being nice to him when he was an assistant, and he said, "Get this, get this guy a crypt." And I hadn't done anything. He said, "Get him a tales from the crypt," and the, the guys that worked for him, he said, "Just get him a crypt. I don't just get him on one of them." Because every show had a different director and a different producer, you know, had different directors and different composers. So there were guys, the guys that were doing that show were, um, <clears throat> were all, Jerry uh, Goldsmith was, did some, um, uh, Jesus, all the, the big, big composers. Wouldn't be surprised if John Williams did one because all these big directors were doing them. <clears throat> and anyway, I got one. I did one. Uh, of those sort of a horror piece about a werewolf and that was great and then you know i did this that and the other thing and then down the shore then down the shore went off the air and they did coach for a couple of years and i they already had a composer on that but i did the hour special for coach and then when they did raymond i did that and then i did um uh yes dear for alan kirschenbaum so i had those shows on so it just and then i did some movies i did a, a, a movie uh for um andy garcia really nice little movie that didn't do too too much but he he get, he he at least Richard Wink the director and and Andy let me uh, have a full orchestra and that was really great awesome. I mean writing for orchestra was just really and with uh, the help of Joe Toronto and and uh, and Dave Spinoza orchestrating and and Joe Toronto helping me write stuff it was just that was heaven for me I honestly it was really hard but it was really creative and just, you know, seeing a piece, hearing a, an or- orchestrated piece of music that you really feel good about to film being played with the orchestra is just, I don't know. There's no other feeling like I can only imagine. I'm sure that it's, you know, especially the, the sense of accomplishment and, and seeing, you know, how far you've come and, and, <clears throat> to be working with this huge orchestra for, for movie. And, and, you know, it's gotta be an amazing feeling. You know, Nick, that, that is a very good point. That sense of accomplishment is something I think is really important. And I get that feeling when I hear, honestly, it's simple things like listening to this, having this conversation with you guys, hearing Johnny talk about, um, danger, breakdown, dead ahead, the, the, the Boz stuff and talking about, uh, James's songs and, and the, you know the, the, those things that I did, and 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 Peg, and all that stuff. I, it really gives me a sense of accomplishment, and it's something that I feel really, really good about. 
and I know it's going to be around and it's a legacy. And it, it's a sense of accomplishment. It's not bad when you have a nice house to go to because of your work, but uh, <laughs> the sense of accomplishment really is, is very, very valuable. Well, I, you know, and I just want to just just interject for one second and sure. say because you kind of touched on this before, Rick, and I think the reality is that the days of you making those records and the, and those records being made, sadly, you know, we're we're not going to see those days again. You know, I mean the the caliber. I mean, not to take anything away from the current generation of musicians, but the caliber of of players that were assembled to make the Asia record to you know. Rick and, and Chuck Rainey and, you know, Peg. And I mean, you're just really not going to see that again. You know, it's just, it's important well, that we document this music. You know, I don't want to be so pessimistic about it because there's, there are great, great players and great musicians out there and great writers out there. It's not, I don't think it's their fault. No. As much as it's the record company and the public's fault. It's what people buy. You know, right. it's what people want to talk about. I think that Pharrell Williams is great. I think he's genius. He's a drummer. And I think he's, I don't know the guy, but I, <clears throat> I know that he's a, I think he's a good person. I think he's well-intended. And I think he writes, he has a, an amazing, amazing gift for yeah. writing these really really uh, uh, catchy songs. But I think, and, 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 and I love the simplicity of it. I really do. And I think things could go more that direction with a little bit better lyric, smarter lyric. I think we're, we're there. You know, we're right there. Mm -hmm. I love songs. I love, I miss, I can't tell you how much I miss Warren Zevon. I can't tell you how much I miss playing with Jackson Brown. Mm -hmm. I mean, guys who, when I would listen to their songs, you know, I was flying, uh, I had to fly cross country uh, last week and I got on a plane and I never listen to music. I rarely do. And <clears throat> I put my headphones on and I was listening and there was this tribute, tribute to Jackson Brown record. And, and, uh, um, the first thing I heard was, uh, I think it's sweet baby blues. Uh, you know that Jackson Brown song? Covered. Yeah. A, a cover version on this tribute record by this couple that I don't really know, a guy and a girl, kind of folky. It was so beautiful. And I remembered the session that I did in New York starting at midnight after a gig they had done. Tony Levin and I went in with Lowell George and Jackson Brown to, I think, the record plan. And the first thing I heard was, I'm sitting down by that highway, down by that highway sign, from Jackson Brown. Mm -hmm. And those are the things I remember and I miss terribly. Now, Jackson didn't use our version, but I got to sit there and play that song all night long, that and maybe something else, with Lowell George, Jackson Brown, and Tony Levin. It doesn't get any better than that. Maybe Kenny Asher might have been playing piano. But it yeah. just, I mean, and then we lose Lowell. Lowell George, who was a phenomenon. Um and, and and Jackson, who still writes beautiful songs, but doesn't get the, he doesn't get the same kind of you know I, I guess you know he's got houses everywhere and he's an incredibly talented guy. But and then we lose Warren. I mean Warren, who writes lawyers, guns, and money, and um, 
uh, Hasten Down the Wind and Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner. I mean, this guy wrote brilliant after brilliant after brilliant after brilliant. I miss that. Yeah. I really miss yeah. that. Sure. And I, and I think they're there. I think they're out there. We just don't let them in the door. And why do you think it is? Just be from what people buy and what people like? and it's commercial. It's people that are in control of the music business see a different commercial end. It's, I mean, I love listening to and love looking at Rihanna on stage. I mean, who <laughs> not doesn't want to look at that? Right. <clears throat> um, and I love some of those songs she does. But... Hmm. But, I mean, how many of them are there? There's, for every great one, there's 30 horrible. Right. Just things you don't really want to listen to. Some lyrics make me laugh. They're funny. That's good. That's fine. But <clears throat> other things I just don't understand. I was, I was kind of looking at and going over some lyrics last week thinking, where is there a good song right now? I mean, really want to hear a good song. It's hard to find them. You got to go back and do what Johnny does. Listen to these old records from great songwriters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a little bit more authenticity then than there is now. You know, now it's and not not that there's not good songs out there now, but I feel like most of it is is what's going to be catchy and what's you know what's, what's going to sell. Nobody right. knows anything. Nobody knows what's going to sell. It's a complete mystery to everybody. Right. There isn't one guy that knows. Like if Pharrell does a song, they go, it's automatically going to sell. We're going to promote the shit out of it. And it sells because right. he's got that gift right now. He's the golden boy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and, and deservedly so. But sure. there are other people out there that are writing great songs that just need, you know, there's this guy, Citizen Cope. Oh, I love Citizen Cope. <clears throat> writes great songs. Yeah, he does. Right? I love he's a great Citizen songwriter. Cope. He reminds me of the great songwriters. Mm -hmm. He's one of those guys. I don't know. I've never seen him perform, but I, I, I think I don't understand why he's not like on James Taylor, kind of like on the cover of Time Magazine. Right. You know, James, James Taylor was on the cover of Time Magazine. Linda Ronstadt was on the cover of Time Magazine. Mm -hmm. Back when that was the forget the cover of Rolling Stone. Anybody can be on the cover of Rolling Stone. That's that's on TMZ. It's like TMZ Rolling Stone. But we're talking about Time Magazine. We're talking about the entire world is looking at these people. Right. Why aren't great songwriters respected anymore? You know, I feel like I feel the same way about Bruno Mars. I mean, Bruno Mars is getting a lot of, a lot of attention, but I think he's great. Yeah. I think he's great. a, I think he's an amazing songwriter. The band's great. amazing. Great, 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 great. You're right. Absolutely correct. You know, and they, that's, that whole story is pretty amazing. I actually interviewed Eric from, uh, you know, it's Bruno's brother, actually, Eric Hernandez, the drummer. And uh, he was saying, you know, like three years ago, they were playing at some club in L.A. And now, you know, they just played on the Super Bowl, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that and he deserves it. Yeah. And he sings, but he sings his ass off. That song yeah. he does about somebody else dancing with you now or something, that ballad he does. Oh, yeah. That's it. Jesus Christ, this guy can sing. Yeah. yeah. And did you ever see the video for it? No, it's, it's just him. It's like an old. It looks like it's a like a nineteen like late sixties, early seventy television studio, and he's just like sitting at a grand piano with a cigar or with a cigarette and like a little glass of brandy, and he's just playing the piano and singing. 
it's a great it's a great video to go along with it so very cool very cool yeah it's cool it's definitely cool but like you know like you said there's so many there's so many good uh songwriters out there that don't get their due and then there's so many really 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 bad ones that that get way more attention than they deserve yeah, and you know, yeah. I'm not taking anything away from them. There's a reason people like them, I think. But and and, and I'm not trying to be hypercritical. I just what I wish there was a a, a venue for um for greatness, mm-hmm. for smarter music, for creative stuff. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I hate to say it, but a lot of a lot of stuff I hear sounds like the same track over and over again. It's the same track on one song and it's the next song is the next song is the next song. And that's where I see these kids, like when I see drummers playing in bands like that, they're all playing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Could be, it's like you don't need, there isn't a personality among any of them. Right. Um, Everybody sounds the same. Same, same, same. You know? So what's on, what's, what's on the horizon for you? What are your, what are your, uh, what are your plans for the future? Doing a documentary now, mostly hip hop music. Um, uh, I'm going to be playing some more with that band. We're just talking about that. We're even talking about doing some recording. Um, I'm going to take the summer off, regroup, and figure out what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Great. I have representation now, so I have to confer with my representative. That's right. I was going to say, does he know that you're taking the whole summer off? That might. I don't know how much time you're really going to get to take off, Rick. That could be a problem. <laughs> I'm heading to uh, Italy to drive around Italy in a million-dollar car in about two weeks. So I don't anything before and after that, anything during that period, I don't care about. I I'm doing a TV show right now for Nickelodeon, <clears throat> for Nick at Night called See Dad Run. It's a Scott Baio show. I'm doing the music to that show, and I just did a pilot in Los in Los Angeles last week, um, uh, two weeks ago. So I, I mean, I'm writing and I'm still working and and um, Talking about, I actually did talk about doing a couple of gigs this summer, but waiting to see what's going to happen with that. But just on, just one-off gigs. I got and you. then next year, go back and figure, you know, just really try to figure out what I want to do. I want to keep writing. I'm thinking about, you know, we keep talking about um, doing some sort of a, of a record. And that's, that's, these are, they're just a step above vanity projects. They're more... Like for us, we, mm-hmm. we, we want a couple of guys I know will sacrifice. I was just talking to Spinoza who said, look, man, I'll come out from Connecticut. I'll just come wherever we want to go. You guys want to meet in L.A., want to do it in New York, whatever. We'll do it. We'll sit down. We'll write. We'll record. And these are guys I grew up playing with who I really enjoy playing with still. And, and I think we got something to say. So anything can happen. Who knows? Great. I like I like how you keep your your options open, you know. Rather yeah, than... I've been thinking about maybe drum teching for Steve Gadd on some of his tours <laughs> coming up because his representatives. Uh, I, I have a connection with his rep. I, I yeah. know people. I know people. And I'll make sure he pays you a good wage. <laughs> Probably Darn better than I'm doing now. <laughs> you know, I just want to also say that again, we sort of touched on this early on, and Rick didn't mention this, but. Rick is probably Steve's favorite drummer. I mean, if not, he's he's right up there. I mean, if when you ask him who he was, in, you know, influenced by coming up, it was Rick. And uh, Steve, Steve says whoever's you know whoever's 
he wants to be friends with that week is his favorite. <laughs> well, we were we were in Europe for three weeks, and he mentioned your name just about every night. You know, I mean, he just he would. He said, I remember going to see Rick Murata play and I wanted to play like that. I wanted to, I heard him, I heard this guy, Rick Murata playing a groove and I want, that's who I wanted to sound like. Well, so that makes me thinking, feel really good. I was thinking it's a good thing Rick's not here right now because he'd have to, you know, Steve would have to pay him some money for that. So. <laughs> no, that's not, you and I both know that's not something Steve's happy to do. <laughs> yes, we do know that. He throws nickels around like they're manhole covers. <laughs> <laughs> squeezes anyway. a, so what's a, uh, squeezes a quarter till the eagle screams. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, one time I said to him years ago, Steve, what is going on, man? I'm worried, but you got to take a break. What's going? On? You go from one gig, take a minute, man. There's other guys out there that need to work too. I said, "How do you? Why do you need to work so much?" He said, "Kids need new shoes." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that four dogs, four dogs, mouths to feed too. There you go. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a funny guy. He's a great player. He's a great musician and a great guy. He's like a brother. That's awesome. Well, Guys, Rick, good. Ah oh, man, I thank you so much for for taking all this time to chat, and it's it's been amazing. I would love to have you back on the show and talk more, man. We could have we could have done anytime. this for for hours. So I know anytime, anytime. Think of more things you want to talk about, and me, you, and Johnny can get together anytime. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely, and especially you know when when if you have the uh, the document documentary that you were talking about um, coming out about hip hop music and everything. Keep me keep your have your people call my people, and we will. Uh, <laughs> And we'll uh, I'll try to remember that. I, I will. I'll try to remember it. Hopefully, it'll all work out. It's about. It's called sneakers. Okay. It's about, it's about that sneaker revolution. You know, the the the. It's a very interesting doc. I mm. really like. It. I hope it all works out. I mean, I've gotten calls from the music supervisor now. They're bringing in guys to write songs and things. And I said to her, I said, Kathy, you realize I'm the composer. You're going to take my job away. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right, guys. All right. Listen, it was a pleasure and it was fun and we'll do it again anytime. Uh, I would love to have you. Rick, thank you again. Really Thanks, do appreciate it. It's a it. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. All right. Talk to you, Johnny. Okay, Rick. See you, buddy. Thanks. Bye, buddy. Bye-bye. There you have it, the legendary Mr. Rick Murata. You can find all the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 589. Also, if you like the podcast, please rate it. Please leave a review. You can do that on iTunes. It takes about a minute. And if you haven't already, sign up for the mailing list. I do. I actually have two mailing lists. I have one for Drummers Resource, and then I have another one called Nick's Monday Mix. And Nick's Monday Mix is more of a mix of a bunch of different stuff. So I have Drummer's Resource in there. I have my other podcast, uh, Music Biz Uncut, which I admittedly have been on a little bit of hiatus with that. But also music industry news and different things like that. If you want to sign up for that, you can go to nickrafini.com forward slash mix, M-I-X, or go to drummersresource.com to sign up for the Drummer's Resource mailing list. And other than that, that's all I got. So till the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. 
edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.